We read our text a few moments ago from Galatians chapter 6. It's one that's probably familiar to us. We're actually going to be looking again at one of these stories from the Old Testament of kings and prophets like we've been doing for several weeks now. But this is our jumping off point tonight. But note here that when Paul makes his statement, he's talking in context especially about giving. And when he talks about sowing and reaping here, in the immediate context, he's especially concerned about encouraging liberality in our giving. But with that said, he supports his point with a general truth. Whatever a person sows, that will they reap. He lays that down as a general guiding principle of God's government of the world. And so when he says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, he's saying that if a person thinks they can sow one thing and reap another thing, well, then they're thinking that they can mock God. That is, to have the ability to defy him to override his plans, his arrangements, his government of the world. Unfortunately, as human beings, we're apt to think that we can do just that. We're apt to think because humanity can accomplish some great things through our own wit, through our own wisdom, through our own devices that we have, perseverance, determination, that we can do anything that we want to do. And so some people think that, well, they can circumvent God's laws just as long as they want, and in the end, they're going to be okay. They're going to be all right. They'll come out on top. And Paul knew that we're prone to thinking this way. And that's why he says there in verse number 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And he makes that statement, and then he expands on it with the results. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What does Paul mean here by sowing and reaping, sowing to the flesh versus sowing to the Spirit? Obviously, he's not talking here about literal planting, sowing and reaping, but the metaphor is used here for a reason. What does a person do when they literally sow? Now, we're not talking here about modern farming machinery. We're talking about the old style of sowing that was practiced in Paul's day, still practiced in some parts of the world today, and and maybe some of you have done some planting like this. A person goes out into a field with a bag slung over their shoulder or something like that, and they reach in, and as they're walking along the rows of the field, they're scattering seed all along the way to their right and to their left and in front of them. Every step of the way, they're scattering seed. And that leaves a great swath scattered there behind them. Paul contemplates that each of us in our lives is doing something very much like scattering that seed. We're all of us leaving something right, left, stretched out behind us, every step along the journey of life. What is that that we're sowing, that we're scattering? Well, we already said that in context, he has special reference to a person's money. 
And we know that some people sow money, and we probably think here of materialistic people in particular, but you know, all of us sow a good deal of it. It slips through our fingers, falls through our grasp, and it drops along the pathway of life. But what else might we be sowing? Money isn't all of it. Every word that drops from our lips and falls to the ground and makes an impression along the way, we're sowing that. Every action that we take, every deed that we do, our lives are made up of moments. And in every one of those moments, we're sowing constantly sowing each and every step that we walk in this life. So then the question is of flesh versus spirit. What does Paul mean when he's talking about sowing to the flesh versus sowing to the spirit? We're not just talking here about giving all of those things that we're sowing, our time, our energy, our abilities, our talents, to the things of the flesh, that is, to clothing, the, the physical man, to, to food and to shelter, to things like that. You all know that in Scripture, the word flesh is frequently used figuratively. To all of those things that would gratify the physical desires that we have. So to sow to the flesh is to devote all of our time, all of our tension, all of our energies, everything that we have sowing to the gratification of our own selfish desires. And Paul says that the person who sows that will reap just as surely as they would reap with any other crop. What is it that they'll reap? Corruption. And that is a horrible word and a horrible concept. We're talking here about the corruption like that of a, a dead, rotting body, and that naturally repulses us, and if that's a disgusting image, that's the point here. But the apostle's speaking not of a body, he's speaking of the soul. And if we think that a corrupted, decaying, putrefied, rotting body is something to be avoided, then well, how much more a corrupted, rotting, putrefied, decaying soul the one who devotes all his time, his energies, and his attention to the things of the flesh will reap as his reward a corrupted soul. Why don't we think about this? Why don't more people realize the truth of this? See, I'm convinced there's a lot of people in the world who are sowing diligently each and every day to the things of the flesh, and I think if they realize that what they would reap is that corrupted soul, they'd stop. But unfortunately, our human tendency is to think, well, I've been in tight spots before. I've gotten out of them. And because we've circumvented humanity, we've circumvented man, we think that some way, one way or another in the end, I can sow to the flesh, but I'm going to slip through God's fingers. I'll get around it. I've been in tight spots before. I'll get out of that one too. But Paul says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. And that brings us to a story that's related in 1 Kings chapters 21 and 22 that's a perfect illustration of this principle. 
This is a story about Ahab, king of Israel. If you were here last week, we talked about Ahab and our story there. He related to the tale of Elijah that we recounted. And on Ahab's palace grounds, there was a vineyard adjoining it, belonging to a man named Naboth. This was when, in Ahab's summer residence in Jezreel. Jezreel is a place where there, there's a flat plain and the breezes blow across from the Mediterranean and they hit the mountains and then they blow back. And so there's a cross breeze effect that makes it a nice place to build a, a summer residence. But Ahab saw Naboth's vineyard and he wanted that. It was a, a nice place. He wanted to enlarge and beautify his own grounds there in Jezreel. And actually, this might surprise us, because if you know anything about Ahab, he's probably the most wicked of Israel's king. He's actually disposed to act about it honestly at first. In 1 Kings chapter 21, in verse number 2, he goes to Naboth and he makes the offer. He says, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. That's a fair deal, isn't it? Ahab author, offered Naboth either the fair price for the land or he offered him a better vineyard. But Naboth didn't want to sell. He'd been born and raised on that little piece of land. And not only that, but his father and his father and his father before him going all the way back to the time of Joshua when all of the land was parceled out. That was the old home place. No amount of money could buy it. And so he says in verse number three, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Couldn't be bought. Ahab, in what's really revealing here, it points out just how much he's like a spoiled child. He does what any spoiled child would do. He goes home, and he flops down on the bed, and he literally turns his face to the wall, and he won't eat. He's pouting, just like a little five-year-old. And Jezebel, his wife, comes in, and she asks him, what's wrong? And he tells her. He says, I wanted Naboth's vineyard, and he wouldn't give it to me. And you get the impression from Jezebel's reaction, this is in verse 7, that she's used to dealing with this side of Ahab. Do you now govern Israel? She tells him, get up, clean yourself up, get something to eat. I will get you the vineyard. And if you know anything about Jezebel, there's a reason. You know, we, we name children after biblical characters sometimes. You ever run across a girl named Jezebel? Not likely. Jezebel has a well-earned reputation for evil. And so she hatched a plan. She sent to the leaders of the city where Naboth lived, and she said, find two men of Belial, declare a feast day, set Naboth on high before the people, and find these two worthless men, and have them swear out a complaint that they heard Naboth curse God and the king. I don't know what those two men were thinking. I don't know or what you would have thought if you'd been one of those magistrates. But I imagine they thought, knowing Jezebel, that one way or another, Naboth was going to die anyway. And if they stood in her way, that they were going to die too. And I suppose they figured that if Naboth was as good as dead one way or another, they might as well not join it. And so they decided to go along with it. 
they carried out that order to execute him. He was stoned to death. And after that had happened, she goes in and she tells Ahab, this is verse number 15, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab, Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. So he mounted up, he took some of the chief officers of the court, they went into the vineyard, and they're all there together, and I don't know what they're doing. I imagine they're sort of making their plans there for how they're going to dispose of it. You know, this would be a nice place for a summer cottage, or maybe we can make a gravel pathway here, we'll put the flower beds here. What about a fountain? And at that moment, Ahab looks up, and there's Elijah the prophet coming into the gate. And if you remember anything about Elijah's and Ahab's interaction from last week, Elijah was a real thorn in his side. And so as soon as he comes within speaking distance, Ahab says, Have you found me, my enemy? And Elijah says, I found you. And he delivers him this message from the Lord, verse number 19. In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick up your own blood. And he turned on his heel and he left, leaving Ahab pale and frightened behind him. And then, this might surprise us again, for a time Ahab actually repents. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and he fasts and he prays. There's a lot of times, you might have seen this in your life, people will come to a point where they're desperately scared and for a time, they'll actually make a change. They'll start to do right, and people think, well, well maybe they're actually going to reform. Maybe they're going to do the right thing. But time goes on, and they forget they were ever scared. They go back to their old ways. Ahab forgot. That brings us to chapter 22. One day Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, came up to visit Ahab. Now, at some points in Israel's and Judah's history, they were at war. But this was a time period when they were at peace. And in fact, Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, was married to Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. So there was a sort of alliance there between the two kingdoms. And while he was there, Ahab starts talking about one of his cities, Ramoth-Gilead, and how the king of Syria had taken it. Ramoth-Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan, but it was technically in Ahab's territory. And so he makes a proposal to Jehoshaphat in verse number 4. He says, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat did put one stipulation on it. If you know anything about Jehoshaphat, he was one of the handful of good kings that Judah had. Israel had no righteous kings, none that faithfully served God. Judah had a few, and Jehoshaphat was one. And so he said, before we do that, let's first inquire of the prophets. Let's inquire of the Lord and see if this is something we should be doing. So Ahab calls in 400 prophets, and he puts the question to them. Should we go up to Ramoth-Gilead or should we refrain? And wouldn't you know it? Every one of those 400 prophets says, Go up, king. The Lord is going to deliver it into your hand. 
You see, when a man like Ahab is on the throne and he's got plenty of money to scatter around, he can get men to say anything that he wants. These are a bunch of yes men. And in fact, one of them, a fellow named Zedekiah, down in verse number 11, he actually fixes up some iron horns and he puts them on his head and he says there, with these, you're going to push the Syrians around until they're utterly destroyed. <laughs> but Jehoshaphat, as we said, was a worshiper of the Lord. And he looks around at all this and he is suspicious, to say the least. And so he actually says in verse number 7, uh, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. There's one, but I don't like him. He never tells me what I want to hear. But Jehoshaphat insists, let's see what Micaiah has to say. And so they send for him. They send an officer to go and fetch him. And this officer, he knew the game too. And so as they're walking along to where the king's sitting, he says in verse number 13, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them. Speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. See, Micaiah is not a false prophet. He's not one of these yes men, and he's not afraid of Ahab. He's going to faithfully discharge his duty to God. And so when he's brought in before Ahab, he puts the very same question to him. Micaiah, should we go up to Ramoth Gilead, or should we refrain? And Micaiah responds in verse number 15, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. I don't know if he delivered it really deadpan like that or if he delivered it in a really over-the-top manner, but whatever it was, something in his tone gave it away that he wasn't telling the truth. And so Ahab says to him, How many times have I told you? Tell me what the Lord says, only the truth in the name of the Lord. So he does that. Verse 17, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master, but each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you that he wouldn't prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, You're to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Of course, everyone standing there knew that Micaiah was speaking allegorically. He was saying that all of these prophets were lying and that Ahab would fall at Ramoth-Gilead. And that's certainly the way that Ahab understood it because he says to the officer down in verse 27, put this fellow in prison, feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. 
Now Ahab knew, Ahab knew that Micaiah had spoken to him the word of the Lord. And Ahab knew just as certainly as Micaiah did that all of those prophets were lying to him. So did Ahab go to Ramoth Gilead? Yes, he did. Did he think that he could mock God? I suppose that he did. He determined to attempt it at any rate. We look down and we read the story here and the two armies are about to enter the field and he says to Jehoshaphat, you put on your royal armor that marks you out as the king of Judah and I'm going to go into battle in disguise. And I suppose he's thinking here that he'd be less of a target that way. You know, Micaiah and God said that the king of Israel is going to die. They'll be looking for a king, but I'll fool them like this. I'll go in disguise. I'll keep a safe distance. And maybe even thought that Jehoshaphat would be more of a target rather than him that way. And for reasons that have never really made sense to me, Jehoshaphat, for some reason, agrees to go along with this plan. I, I don't know why. But at any rate, it appears that Ahab actually might have been on to something because whether it was a, a personal vendetta or whether he was trying to end the battle quickly, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, actually was targeting Ahab. It says in verse number 31 that he took 32 captains of his chariots and he said, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. So when the battle was joined, 32 of Ben-Hadad's hand-picked men were on a special mission, a search-and-destroy mission to kill only Ahab. If he had known what Micah had prophesied, he couldn't have done a better job to try to carry it out. And in the course of the battle, those men saw the crest of a king and they made a rush for him thinking that it was Ahab. But at that moment, he cried out. I don't know if he was trying to rally his troops or what, but they realized it was Jehoshaphat, not Ahab. And so they pulled back. And when the battle was over, they would have to go and report that they tried to fulfill their mission, but, but they couldn't do it. So it looks like Ahab's plan worked. Did he escape? No. A Syrian archer, as if by random, aimlessly in the most literal sense, picked up an arrow and he let it fly. And somehow, it found its way to Ahab and it struck him right in the joints of the armor. That is, right by his breastplate. And Ahab, to his credit, was propped up in his chariot until the battle ended. But as the day wore to a close and the battle ended, Ahab died. They returned to Samaria. They came near the palace just opposite the place where Naboth had his vineyard. And they took Ahab's body out and they began to wash the blood out of the chariot. And the dogs came and they licked up Ahab's blood. God could not be mocked. He guided an arrow aimed at random to his target. He didn't need 32 hand-picked men to go and to carry out his mission. And he didn't need Ahab to be dressed in the robes of the king. When he says a thing shall be done, it shall be done. So it's just this sort of story that Paul could draw on when he makes his point. Be not deceived. 
God is not mocked. Those who sow to the flesh and think that there's some way that they're going to get out of it by their own ingenuity, they're in for a rude awakening because they're only going to reap corruption. But on the flip side of that, thank God for the provision of His gospel of grace that through it those who have sown to the flesh might escape corruption if they only begin to sow to the Spirit. Because you see, while our text back in Galatians makes it clear, it's true, it's unalterable that the one who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. It's equally true, equally unalterable, that the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. And it doesn't matter if all the forces of evil in this world, if people want to drag you and pull you down, it it doesn't matter if the devil himself should undertake to ruin a person. If they sow to the Spirit, God promises they will reap eternal life. That's the promise of God. So the question this evening Which are you sowing to? Are you sowing to the Spirit? If you are, praise God. Trust in His promise. Continue to do that. But if you're not, if you've been sowing to the flesh, begin tonight. Turn to Him. Begin sowing to the Spirit. Devoting, as we said, all your time all your attention, all your energies, all your money, all your resources, everything that's in you to serving Him and to doing His will. Whether you've never come to Him at all or whether you need to come home this evening, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and sing.